What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been looking at Israel's journey that started in Egypt, ultimately going to end at the promised land. And, and we've noted that God isn't taking them the most direct route, which would have followed the Mediterranean Sea right up to uh, the land of Canaan. But he's taking them this very long route that's going far south. It's going to come down to Mount Sinai and then ultimately up the other side all the way to the promised land. And there's a reason that God is taking this much longer route than was necessary because He's leading them on this path, and then he comes to these different places where there are different issues that the Israelites are facing, and, and ultimately God is using all of this to teach them some very important lessons that they need to learn, and he also often we see brings some tests to them uh, to kind of see if they'll obey him and trust him and do what he ultimately asks of them, uh, and you know we've seen really as the um, Israelites go on this journey kind of pattern that has, you know, come up over and over again. There's only one stop where this pattern doesn't fit, and that's when they went to Elam, the place that had all the palm trees, and it had the 12 uh, wells of water. It's kind of that place of rest and peace, but besides that place, we have a pattern that has continued to happen on this journey so far, and what takes place is they come to a place that God leads them, and there's a problem, and they respond by complaining. And then God miraculously deals with their problem and then teaches them a valuable lesson from the problem that he ultimately delivered them from. And so if you remember, they started this journey. They come to their first problem, which is at the Red Sea. You know, they can't go anywhere. They're trapped. You know, the Israel, uh, the Egyptian army is there. They, you know, start responding as they typically do with complaints against God. And then God miraculously delivers them by parting the Red Sea, teaches them some great lessons. Uh, and then they travel to their next place. The second place they go is the wilderness of Shur. They have a problem. They go three days without water. They respond in the same way. They complain against Moses. They complain against God. Uh, and then God, before he deals with their problem, he leads them to the next place, which was the place that they named Mara, bitterness, because they get there, they're all excited. Oh, there's water. Finally, it's been three days. We can drink. And they go to drink the water, and it's bitter and undrinkable. And so once again, they complain to God. That's their response. But this time, God miraculously changes the water, makes it sweet, makes it drinkable, and teaches them a valuable lesson at that stop. And then they they go to Elam, and they have have, you know, just a very different experience, but God also teaches them some important lessons there. Uh, and then they go to the wilderness of sin, and they got a new problem. There's no food, but they got the same response. They start complaining to God that there's no food, and God miraculously provides manna from heaven in the morning, uh, and then quail in 
the evening. And so we've seen this continual cycle where the Israelites will be led by God to a place where they encounter problems. They respond with complaining. God responds by miraculously providing for them and teaching them a lesson. And the question that really comes up as you see this happen over and over again is when are the Israelites going to get to a point when they say, all right, Lord, we're just going to trust you. We've had problem after problem after problem, and you keep coming through. You keep answering. You keep delivering. You keep doing what is necessary to meet our need. And we kind of think, okay, when are you going to stop complaining and start trusting the Lord? Well, now we're coming to chapter 17 of Exodus, and we're going to see God's going to lead them to a new place, and they're going to encounter another problem. And now they're going to get an opportunity. Is their response going to be the same as it has been? Or are they going to learn from the past and start implementing what they've learned in the present? So let's see if their response changes at all. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1, says this, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but... There was no water for the people to drink. So the Israelites, they leave the wilderness of sin. They come to this new place, Rephidim, and they encounter a new problem. There's no water. But I think it's important to note here this pattern that we're seeing, that we've continued to see from the departure of Exodus to now, is the fact that God is the one that is specifically leading them to everywhere that they go. And we're told here that they leave the wilderness of sin, they camped in Rephidim. Notice we're told, according to the commandments of the Lord. So this is not just randomly wandering, like, okay, where's the next town we're going to go? God commands them, I want you right here. So notice that they're being obedient. They're going where God wants them to go. And what do they find when they get there? They find a problem. There's no food. And I think this is interesting to note here because they did exactly what God commanded. They're fully obedient. They're in the will of God completely. But yet they encounter this problem at the same time. And for many people, that's kind of like, well, wait a second, that shouldn't go together. You know, there are a lot of Christians who think, well, if I'm in the will of God, then, then surely I'm going to be problem free. You know, if I'm in the will of God, then, then nothing difficult is going to come into my life. And there's even people who teach that false concept, which is not something that the Bible teaches. You look at Jesus' life. He's the only one who completely lived in the will of God all his life, and he surely didn't live a problem free life. He had lots of problems living in the will of God. And so anyone who kind of comes to this conclusion or thought that, you know what, if I'm just living in the will of God, then my life's going to be easy. I'm not going to deal with any difficulty or problems. They're not reading the Bible and understanding what living in the will of God ultimately is like. And so, you know, I've mentioned before, and I think it's something to be reminded of here, God is more concerned about our spiritual growth than he is about our present physical comfort. And I think this is something that we struggle with so often because really oftentimes we're more concerned about our present physical comfort than we are about spiritual growth. And so if it's like, Lord, if it's between one or the other, give me my comfort. You know, I just won't grow for a while. I don't want to be physically uncomfortable for the spiritual growth that is going to come. But God says, no, no, no. 
I'm more concerned about your spiritual growth, so I will lead you to places where there are problems. I will allow you to go through trials and difficulties because I know through that, I'm going to help you grow. Through that, I'm going to train you. Through that, you're going to become more like me. But you know what? I want to bring up another thing. I also believe the Bible reveals clearly to us that God is more concerned about spiritually lost people than He is about our present physical comfort. And this is another one of those struggles that we have of like, oh Lord, you know, I'm happy to, to share when it's super convenient. I'm happy to preach the gospel or communicate, you know, to see somebody if it's just, it doesn't cost me anything. If it's not hard for me, if it doesn't put me in some kind of uncomfortable situation or, or difficulty, then yeah, count me in. But, but once it's hard, once it's physically uncomfortable, yeah, I'm not so interested in reaching lost people anymore. You know, you look through the book of Acts, and what do you see? God sending his followers to reach lost people, and pretty much none of them had an easy road. There were lots of problems that they encountered as they sought to share the gospel with others. And so don't be shocked when God leads you to a place where there's a problem. Instead, look for what God wants to teach you, how God wants to grow you, how God might want to use you in reaching people that don't know him. So God leads the Israelites to Rephidim. They encounter this problem of having no water. But note that this is not a new problem. You know, and I get it. You know, when you encounter something new, you know, there's those new fears, those new struggles, those new issues that come because you've never encountered this before. And so I give them a little more grace when I see them encounter something new and respond poorly. But this is now the third time that they've had this exact same problem. They've already encountered two times now where they've had no water. Wilderness of Shur, no water for three days. They come to Mara, still no water because it's bitter, but God provides. So they've already encountered this. They've already seen God deal with and take care of their problem by miraculously providing for them. And you would think, okay, well, now it's the third time. Surely, third time's a charm. Surely, they have learned their lesson. And yeah, they didn't trust him the first time. They didn't trust him the second time. But now that they've done it, now their third time, let's see if they've learned anything from their other two experiences. Verse 2. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you've brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children with our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So every time on this journey that Israelites have encountered a problem, we've seen a consistent response. Unfortunately for them, it's a consistent sinful response, one of complaining. And that is something that happens again on this encounter as well. But you know what? They've added to it something worse. Not only are they complaining against Moses, complaining against God that there's no water to drink, but notice now there's this new negative response. We're told they contended with Moses. Now this Hebrew word here translated contend means to strive with, to quarrel with, you know, ultimately it's, it's a, it's a uh, word that brings kind of this fighting attitude towards someone. Now we know this contention was quite severe because in Moses' prayer, and he's like, Lord, what do I do? Notice what he says to God. They're almost ready to stone me. 
You don't just throw that out there. So, I mean, you realize this contention was serious. They're at the point where, like, we're ready to kill you, Moses. You know, that's how we feel about you and how we feel about what God's led us to right now. And, you know, it tells us why they're kind of at this point, because notice that this contention and this complaint has led them to assume the worst possible thing about Moses and the worst possible thing about God. Notice they accuse Moses, you brought us out to Rephidim to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Yeah, that's the plan the whole time. Yeah, all the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the quail, it was all to lead us to this place so that you could kill us with thirst. That's what they've come to. That's what they're now accusing God, accusing Moses of. And now it's like, you know what? You brought us here to die. We're just going to kill you. We're going to stone you to death, Moses. But you know what? The response even gets worse. Moses asks him a question. He says, why do you tempt the Lord? Now, if we was just left with that question, we wouldn't really have a, quite an understanding of what do you mean by that, Moses? Why do you tempt the Lord? But at the end of verse 7, Moses gives us some insight as to what he's referring to. We're told, because they tempt the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So there, here we go. It's not just, a, I'm tempting. It's like, God, are you even with us? Do you even care about us? You're not even here anymore. You're not even going to take care of us. We, we have no trust in you any longer, even after everything that you've done, even after all the way that you've provided, even after you delivered us from Egypt, even after you parted the Red Sea and destroyed our enemies, even if you provided manna from heaven, quail in the evening, you've done all these things, but you know what? Are you even among us? Are you even here for us? Have you abandoned us? That's where they're at. As they face this new problem, they've come to a pretty bad place. Now you would think, <laughs> they've gone through this twice. All right, at least get a little better. Maybe you're not going to be totally into, Lord, we just fully trust you and you're going to take care of all our needs. You know, maybe we don't expect them to jump from you know, complaint to that, but hopefully making baby steps towards that direction. But sadly, the third time is worse than the first and second. They not only complain, but they're also contending against Moses, wanting to stone him, testing God. This is getting pretty bad. What God did in the past to get them through their problems, unfortunately, doesn't seem to have affected their present. They're not looking back in remembrance of, look, it, you've been faithful in the exact same situation. You delivered us. You gave us what we needed. That doesn't seem to impact their present thinking. Now in chapter 16, I mentioned that oftentimes when we're complaining, we have kind of a, a selective memory of our past, of our time before Christ. Seem to remember the good things and not the bad as the Israelites were saying, oh, the food in Egypt was so great. Our time in Egypt was so great. No, you were slaves and you hated it. But you know what? We, we, we do that as well. We often complain Forget what God has done in the past through our problems. We go through difficulty. God gives us everything we need to get through it. Then maybe a week or a month or a year goes by and we encounter the same exact problem. And what God did in the past doesn't seem to register, doesn't seem to impact how we respond presently of like, wait a second, I'm going to look back to this and remember, hey, God already got me through this. God already showed He's faithful in this area. And so I'm going to trust Him now because He's proven Himself to me in this way. But it seems that we just kind of forget. 
and we just respond with a complaining, with a lack of trust. Maybe even questioning, is God even with me anymore? You know, I think it's interesting when you look through the Bible, God goes out of His way to get the nation of Israel, to get His followers to remember things that He's done. He has them set up memorials to remember. He has them do all sorts of feasts. And you start looking at the feasts, and you're like, what's the point of all these feasts? One of the major points of all the feasts that God gives is to remember something that He has done for them. So that every year they partake of this and the kids say, what do we do this every rule? Let me tell you why we do it. Because God did this for us in the past and we want to remember that. As Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Speaking of communion, why? I don't want you to forget. Don't forget what I sacrificed for you. Don't forget what I've done for you. For throughout the scriptures, God is constantly doing things to bring to our remembrance what he's done in the past. Why? Because it makes it much easier to deal with the present. When we're willing and able to remember and hold on to what God has done in the past, it makes it so much easier to deal with the same situations or similar situations that we face in the present because of what God has taught us. Because of hopefully what we've learned and what we now can implement the next time we go through it. And hopefully, unlike the Israelites, respond better than we did the last time. You see, the lessons that God teaches us aren't just for that time. And it's great. You know, when we're in that moment and we learn something, it's like, wonderful, Lord. He's like, yeah, hold on to that. That's not just for now. I want you to, you'll put that right here, hold on to it, because you're going to encounter something similar, and I want you to draw that back out, and I want you to use that to get through the next situation that you face. You know, for those in our church who went on our mission trip to Uganda, and then on the next year went to Kenya, it was interesting because you know, we talked about how much we had to raise in Uganda, and some of them, for the first time, they're going 3750 bucks, and, you know, they're honest, some are like, that's never going to happen. God can't raise $3,750 for me. I'm not going on this trip. And as the Lord keeps providing month after month, and all of a sudden all the money comes in, they go on that trip, and then they decide the next summer, I'm going to Kenya. Great, it's going to be $3,750. And there was a very different response for those who already experienced God's provision. God got this. He can handle this. I've seen him do it. It was only last summer that he provided all of this for me. And it's amazing the difference in response. Why? Because they learned a lesson from the last time God came through for them. Now, unfortunately, the Israelites, they have not implemented the lessons they should have learned, the lessons that God wants to teach them, and they just continue to respond in the same and even worse sinful ways. So they're contending, they're complaining against Moses, they're testing God. You don't even care. You've abandoned. Are you even with us? But you know, when you look at everything that's happening, ultimately, they're just blaming someone else for the problem. Moses, it's your fault. You brought us here to kill us. Oh God, it's your fault. You abandoned us in all of this. You know, and this is so often the tendency we have. When I look at problems, and I look at how I've responded to problems over the years. I know I have a tendency. I'm sure you do as well. We don't want to take ownership of problems. We don't want to try to just look back and see, you know, just look at it biblically, look at it spiritually, try to figure out a way through it. It's the easier thing just to start throwing blame. Well, it's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. And we just want to blame others. And, and maybe for a little moment that makes us feel a little better. But guess what? 
It doesn't do any good for the problem itself. It doesn't help you get through it. It doesn't give you strength in it. Ultimately, it just makes it worse. Now I have my problem and the person I'm blaming for the problem that's making it even harder. And if you're blaming God, the one who's going to get you through, you're probably not looking to Him to help you through it. And so it's a very problematic thing to do. You know, in this situation, Israel could have thought, you know what, we're in a desert. It's not surprising there's not much water here. But you know what? God's provided in the past. Let's trust Him to do it in the present. He's already done it two times before. But instead of thinking through their problem carefully and spiritually, hey, let's just blame Moses. Let's just blame God. They're the reason we're here anyway. It's their fault. Why don't we stone Moses while we're at it? And that just made their problem worse. Well, Moses has a different response. A response that you want to say, here's an example to follow, because the Israelites are an example not to follow. If you're looking at, hey, how should I respond? Don't respond like the Israelites. Do respond like Moses, because he faces his problem very differently. He responds by crying out to the Lord. Walter Kaiser wrote this, One of Moses' most characteristic and praiseworthy traits was that he took his difficulties to the Lord. You know, the thing I love about this is like everybody can have this characteristic or praiseworthy trait. It's not like, well, I got to be born with it or God's got to give it to me. We all have the ability. God tells us, you know, come boldly to my throne of grace. The, the offer is always there. We can always bring our problems to the Lord who's always ready to listen and to help. And you know, I think the biggest thing that we need to understand is, you know what? You complain, you go and, you know, just kind of say, blame this person, blame that. It does nothing for the problem, but you know what does something for the problem? Prayer. That's the one thing that's actually going to help you. That's the one thing that's actually going to strengthen you and sustain you and, and get you through the problems you face. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So we see the response of the nation of Israel to their problem, but understand Moses actually has a greater problem than them. He has their problem as well. He hasn't drunk anything either. There's no water for him, but he has an even bigger problem. Their problem, his problem is them. He's got millions of people who are angry at him, blaming him, thinking that he brought them out there to kill them. Oh, and by the way, they're getting close to wanting to stone him to death. So Moses' problem is, is at a greater level than the Israelites' problem. But you know what? He responds in a very different way. He comes to the Lord with the problem. And he asks God, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do with these people. I need wisdom here. I need help. How should I respond to this situation? How should I respond to them and what's going on? I need your wisdom. 
Well, God responds to Moses' prayer by telling Moses to do four important things. First, God tells Moses to go on before the people. Moses, you need to go on before the people, ultimately speaking of, you need to get out there and you need to lead. Now, I could understand if Moses like, Lord, I just want to be with you right now. I don't want to be around these people. You know what? They got stones in their hands. You know, some of them are, are ready to throw them at me. You know, they want to kill me. They're so upset. I could see if Moses was like, I don't want to get out there and lead these people. I don't even want to be around them right now. They're acting in a very ungodly way. They're acting in a foolish way. Those are probably reasons all of us would want to steer clear of a group like that. <laughs> I don't think I want to lead this group right now, Lord. But when you change them and you change their behavior, you call me back and, and maybe I'll get out there and lead them. It's difficult to lead these type of people, but you know what? These are also the reasons why this group so desperately needed Moses to lead them. Because of their ungodliness, because of their foolishness, because of the way in which they were living sinfully, they were in a greater need for a godly man to lead them. They needed that spiritual shepherd. You know, this is something that is so important to have in the church. This is also something so important to have in the home. Because in the church and in the home, you have ungodly people. You have spiritually immature people who often do sinful things, who often do foolish things. You know what they need? They need godly, spiritually mature people who are willing to lead them in truth, to lead them to the Lord, to lead them as a godly example. You know, if you're a husband, your wife needs you to lead her as a spiritually mature man. Lead her in the ways of the Lord. If you're a parent, your kids need you to be spiritually mature parents who lead them. In a church, there are spiritually immature people that need godly mature people to lead them, to come alongside of them, to disciple them, to point them to Christ. But you know what? I'm sure all of us who are parents, it can be difficult when your child's acting sinfully and you're just like, you know, I remember my mom would always, when I was good, be like, Matthew, my son, and when I was bad, your son, speaking to my dad, it was like, that's yours now and that behavior. But, you know, sometimes we disassociate from the kids as, as they're, you know, really bad. But it can be hard. It can be hard leading and be that example when the child's difficult. But you know what? In the church as well, it's difficult. When the people are hard and they're ungodly and they're, you know, and then you're doing all this work like Moses is and their response is, we just want to kill you. It can be difficult. But those are the people who need godly leadership the most. I think we have a tendency to want to lead easy people. Lord, bring me the spiritually mature. I'll lead them. Bring me the godly. Bring me the ones with a very little amount of problems. Yeah, I'll take care of them every day. No problem. I got that. But those aren't the people who really need leadership as much. Those are the people who should be leading. The ones who really need leadership are the messed up ones, the ones with all the problems, the ones who are spiritually immature, the ones of all the issues. And if you want to be a leader, those are the people that God's going to bring in your life. And you got to recognize, all right, I'm willing to lead these people. I'm willing to be an example to them. So the first thing that God tells Moses, go on before the people. Get out there, Moses. Lead them. But the second thing that God tells Moses to do is take with you some of the elders of Israel. Moses, you need to go and lead the people, but this is not going to be a one-man show. 
You can't just do this on your own. It's not all on your shoulders. You need other godly people to help lead in order for this to be something that's going to be effective. I think something important to note in leading the Israelites is that it needed the elders as well. It needed a group of people that ultimately could come and minister. I mean, there's millions of them. You know, Moses is not going to be effective in and of himself trying to lead a group that big. I think a wise leader will always look for other godly people to help them lead. And the more godly people you have leading, ultimately I think the better that's going to be. And I emphasize godly people because you can put people in leadership that cause problems because they're not. But, you know, I think this is very important to church. You know, when you see churches, they start growing, and sometimes the growth of the congregation doesn't match the growth of the leadership in the sense of putting more people in leadership roles of leading people. And so you get people who kind of get left because, hey, there's not enough people leading because the church has gotten so big and there's not enough people taking care of that. And so, you know, in the church, this is important to recognize, and it can't just be one guy. All right, I'm the leader, I'm going to do it all. No, we've got to get other people, just like God's telling Moses, we need other, we need the elders, we need more people coming on board here so that we can take care of all these people. But you know what? I think this is also on a smaller scale, just as important at home. I think it's interesting to note, studies have shown that the majority of Christian homes, there is only one parent that's really spiritually leading and investing in the kids. And unfortunately, that's not the one that the Bible says should be taking the majority of that, which is the father. It's typically the mother. But you know, when you have both the father and the mother both taking on the spiritual responsibility to invest and to lead and to be examples to their kids, how much more effective those parents are in raising their kids in a godly way than just if it's only one. So godly leadership wasn't desired to be a one-man or one-woman show. It's great to have teams of people coming together to effectively lead God's people. So first thing God tells, hey, Moses, you need to get out. <laughs> All right, this is good. You've prayed. We've talked, but now get out and lead. Second, you got to bring some other guys. Get the elders. They need to lead with you. And now third, God says, take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. I love this. God's about to do something miraculous. And in preparing Moses for it, hey, Moses, one other thing before you go, take the rod. And notice he doesn't just say take the rod, but he specifies the rod that's done something in the past. Notice that God says, hey, the, the one I did the miracle with when you struck the Red Sea. Remember that rod when you struck the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted? You'll probably never forget that for the rest of your life. But, you know, I'm sure those were vivid memories of Moses touching that sea with the rod and boom, the whole sea opening. God says, yeah, take that rod with you. Now, this wasn't for God's benefit. It wasn't like God saying, oh, wait, wait, don't forget the rod because I can't do this miracle unless you got the rod. I mean, if the rod's not there, then, you know, there's nothing that's going to happen. God doesn't need the rod. The rod isn't for God in any way, shape, or form. The rod's for Moses. The rod is to help Moses with the confidence of, hey, I've already used that. I've already done that through you. It's like, here, you hold on to this so that you can be more confident as you lead the people. You hold on to this so that you can be more confident that I'm going to do something miraculous through you just like I did at the Red Sea. And even before the Red Sea, that rod was used with the plagues and the rod was used and even turned into a serpent. That rod had meaning to Moses. And it was something that would remind him of the miraculous power of God that worked through him. And so God says, take that with you. You're going to need that. 
That's going to be a good part of helping you lead the way I want you to lead. So first, get out there and lead. Second, take the elders. Third, take the rod. But now comes the fourth and most important thing of all. Moses, you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Moses, I want you to take that rod, that same rod that you struck the Red Sea with and I parted the Red Sea with. Now you're going to go and you're going to strike this rock. And when you do, another miracle is going to happen. I'm going to bring water from that rock so that the people here who are dying of thirst can have something to drink. Now, there are three things I want you to note about this miracle of God causing water to come from the rock. The first thing should be obvious, but I think it's important to note, is that it was a God-empowered miracle. And this is something that is true of all real miracles. I emphasize the real because I think there's stuff that's out there that's claimed to be miracles or claimed to be different things that aren't really what's true. But any true, real miracle, guess what? There's only one person who has the power to do it, and that is God. He's the one that makes them happen. And notice that before God tells Moses to strike the rock, he reveals something that he's going to do. Moses, you need to go lead. You need to go and get the elders. You need to take the rod. And then he's, oh, wait, but I'm going to do something too. Notice what God's going to do. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. Moses, I want you to go to the rock with the elders, with the rod. When you get there, I want you to strike it. But I want you to know I'm going before you. And then I'm going to stand on that rock and be there with you. And then when you strike it, I'm going to be the one that makes water flow from this rock. John Trapp wrote this, If God had not stood upon the rock, in vain had Moses struck it. You know, Moses didn't have the power to make water come from that rock. And this is something that's so important to realize, is, you know, if, if, if Moses was just there, Standing on the rock, he's got his rod. He could have hit that rock as many times as he wanted, as hard as he wanted. If God wasn't there with him, if God wasn't there giving the power, if God wasn't doing the miracle, then he would have struck that rock all day long and nothing would have changed. Nothing would have happened. It was all about God's power. Now here's why I bring that up, because I'm sure there were Israelites and they're looking on at this. And they conclude, whoa, Look at Moses. Look at the power of Moses. Look what Moses did. He just gave us water. And they now look at Moses as the source of the power. And I think it's easy for people to praise and give credit to the person God uses instead of God himself. And we see that a lot today. And unfortunately, there are those who recognize that and they want the praise. And it's like, oh, yeah. Tell me how powerful I am and how miraculous I am and how wonderful I am. That They know that there are people who look at the servants and not the master, at the one that God is using and not the one that is God himself with the power. And so they, they abuse that. You know, in the book of Acts, several times we see Peter, we see Paul, we see the apostles healing and people see that and they're just like, oh, wow. And they get down and they, they bow before this person because they think, oh, the person is the one with the power. 
The person here in front of me, oh, Paul, you healed me. Peter, you healed me. And right away, Peter and Paul, no, get up. Don't bow down to me. Don't worship me. I'm not the one who did this. God is the one. He's the one with the power. He's the one who has healed you. I am just the servant. I'm just the, the vessel that he used. Now, other people looking on, they might have not looked at Moses. They might have looked at the rod. Oh, look at that rod. That's the same rod that struck the Red Sea and it parted. Now it's the rod that struck the rock and water came out. If I had the miracle rod, imagine what I could do. And they start looking to the rod as this is the source of power. This is the thing that I need. Oh, wow, that rod is so amazing. And they kind of make an idol out of the rod itself. And sadly, we have that today. You even see in some of these movies, usually they're more horror movies, you'll have a priest and it'll be holding a cross and it'll keep demons away or something like there's some power in this cross and I have this cross in my hand and, and now I can do stuff with it and I can, you know, it holds this power. There's no power in some cross that's made by man. There's only power in what Jesus did on the cross. People kind of hold on to these little idols, hold on to these little things, maybe little saints or whatever, and they think, oh, this is where power comes from. This is the source of what I need. No, it's not. Miraculous power is from God alone. And we don't want to miss that. So the first thing I want you to note about this miracle, it's a God and power miracle. The second thing, it was a very generous miracle. I want you to think about this. I mean, look at who he's giving this miracle to. A group of complaining people who've taken the one that you've appointed as their leader and they're contending against him so much so that they want to stone him to death. And then to you, the God who's done all this for them, they're saying, are you even with us? They're testing you. You abandon us. Do you even care about us? This is the group that God says, I am going to meet your need. I'm going to bless you with miracle water. So generous. I mean, for you who are parents, when your kid is just acting horrible and they do all these horrible things and then after that they ask you for something, are you more inclined or less inclined to be like, oh yeah, let me give you that after your horrible behavior? I know I'm like, no. (laughs) You don't even have to ask again. The answer is no. I'm not getting anything after that kind of behavior. That's more of where I'm at typically. But I love the fact that God is so generous so gracious to a group that has that doesn't deserve anything from him at all. I mean, he's already done so much for them, and they're so ungrateful, and yet here they are in this place where they're in need. And God is just gracious, and he's generous, and he looks at these people. Yeah, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Because I am so loving. I am so gracious. I am so generous. Here you go. I'm going to take care of your need, even though you've complained even though you've done all these other things against me. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, Here again the divine patience appears, for Jehovah uttered no word of reproach, but in spite of their impatient unbelief, provided water out of the rock for them. I know I am so glad that God is very patient, that He is very generous, that He is very gracious towards us towards me specifically. Because you know what? As we look at Israel and sometimes we think, you guys are just foolish when you're going to get it right. You know, when we're really honest with ourselves, I hope that you can recognize we got a lot in common, maybe more than we would like with Israel. 
We do a lot of the stupid things they do. We make a lot of foolish mistakes. We do a lot of sinful things, and we're in that kind of same boat. And I hope you're excited as I am that the Lord in those times is still gracious and generous and loving and merciful and gives to us not what we deserve. So the first thing I want you to note about this miracle is it's God-empowered. Second, it is generous. But the third thing I want you to note It was a meaningful miracle. And when I say meaningful, I mean it had a specific meaning to it. Not just for the the present moment, but more specifically for a future event. You know, I've noted several times now in Exodus that God is providing in some very unexpected ways. And you look and think, why this? I mean, of all the things that you want us to do here, you know, why do you choose a lamb that we would keep in our home and get close to and then have to cut its throat and have to take the blood and put it on a doorpost and lintel and then have to eat it and burn it in fire? I mean, that seems really odd. Why would you choose that? Oh, well, now we have this bitter water. Why would you put a tree in there? Oh, now you know we have nothing to eat and you bring this bread from heaven. Why choose those specific things? And we've noted that all these things that seem kind of odd, that seem like, why would you choose that over something else? That they were there for a specific reason, for a specific meaning, to not just for the immediate need, but to point to something far greater in the future, to point to Jesus. And something that I want you to note is this miracle of water from the rock is also one of those special things that points us to Jesus Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing, and he's writing about this time that Israel was in the wilderness and how God provided and the things that God did. And I want you to note what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-4. through Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that flowed, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Notice that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes something very important here, He brings up the reality, looking back to the rock, the one that God used to bring this water as Moses struck it with the rod. He says, that rock was Jesus. That's what it's pointing to. That's what it was all about, leading us to the spiritual drink that Jesus would offer. It's a picture of Him. You see, God wanted the Israelites to remember this time He provided for them in the wilderness So he had them take a feast, a feast of tabernacles. And every year they would celebrate this feast for seven days. And in this thing, one of the things that they would remember in this feast was how God provided water for them from the rock. And I think it's very interesting. And Jesus, in the book of John, at the end of this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles has now been going. It's the final day. Now they're celebrating, looking back. Remember when God provided water from the rock for us. Remember, he took care of our thirst there in the wilderness. Notice what Jesus says to this people who are celebrating that event. John 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day, that great day of the feast, speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think of this. Here's a time Israel's celebrating. They're looking back. Look what God did for us. Remember when he provided that water from the rock? And notice what Jesus says to these people who are thinking about God providing for their thirst in the wilderness. He says, hey, if any one of you is thirsty, come to me. I will quench your thirst. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is doing here is he's connecting himself to that rock. Just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, that was Jesus. Jesus himself is connecting himself back to that rock, that that was picturesque of him and what he would ultimately bring. But you remember how that water came out? It wasn't just the water came out. What had to happen? Moses took the rod and he had to strike the rock. And once the rock was struck, then the water came out to be a blessing to the people. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And this is where the picture gets even greater because Jesus had to be struck. He had to be beaten. He had to be crucified in order for the blessing to flow out to us. Because if that didn't happen to him, if he wasn't sacrificed for our sin, then we couldn't have had the forgiveness that we had. We couldn't have the blessing of what that took place. So Jesus is the rock, but he also had to be struck just like the rock was struck back in the wilderness in order for him to give us the wonderful blessing that we have. And even more in that picture, As Jesus is on the cross and He finally says, it is finished, those wonderful words, and He gives up His spirit and He dies. A soldier comes and pierces His side and blood and water flows out. We sang Rock of Ages just a little bit ago. And I love the words. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. So God provides water in a very unexpected way, ultimately to point to Jesus. We're going to get to a point where God's going to provide water again from a rock. and He's going to tell Moses, speak to it, Moses. And Moses in anger is going to strike it. And because of that, he's not going to get to go into the promised land. You think, man, that is such a harsh consequence. But you know, one of the things that Moses did is he messed up this typology. God's saying, I wanted you to strike it the first time so it could be a picture of Jesus and what he would go through. But Jesus didn't have to die twice. It wasn't needed that way. The second time, I wanted you to speak because there's something in the future that I want you guys to relate back to with this. And you messed that up, Moses. And there's some big consequences that are going to come with it. But this is speaking and pointing to Jesus. Well, after all this happens, Moses is now going to give some names. They gave Mara the name to the place that's bitter. Kind of give names to these places based on experiences they have. Well, they've had some experience here. Let's see what he names it. Verse 7. So he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Meribah means contention. 
And masa means temptation. So Moses is saying, all right, let's name this place. All right, I got two great names. It fits it perfectly. Contention, the contention that you had with me, and temptation, the, tempta- the fact that you tempted God. We're going to name this place that. So you guys can remember your bad response when you were here. They tempted the Lord saying, is he among us or not? But you know what? This is the, I think the crux of it and the, maybe the most sad reality of all. After all that God has done, what that statement is when they say, are you with us or not? Is a statement that just totally shows, I don't trust you. What? I put 10 plagues to take you out of Egypt. Yeah, and then you brought us to the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's army was there. Yeah, and I parted the Red Sea and then I wiped them all out. Yeah, but then we didn't have water. Yeah, and I provided that. Well, then we didn't have food and I provided that. Well, I don't trust you. It's like, how much more do I have to do to earn your trust? And that can be frustrating. <laughs> Scarlet's a picky eater. Regularly, Jenny and I will you know, try to get her to eat different things. Oh, it's going to be horrible. We're not going to give you something that's going to be horrible. Just try it. Or it'll be a new movie or something. Oh, it's going to be so bad. She's always kind of assuming the worst oftentimes. Like, when have we given you something bad? Well, never. When have we picked something that you don't like? Actually, the last one we picked you love. Yeah, I know, but this one's probably going to be. No, stop assuming the worst and just trust us. But you know what? We're like those kids. God, I can't trust you. What are you talking about? What have I ever done that would make you think that I won't take care of you? What have I ever done that would make you think I won't be here for you? What have I ever done that would make you think that you can't trust me? And if we're honest with ourselves, well, nothing. (laughs) And we have way more than the Israelites. And when we can look back to the cross, we can look back to what Jesus did for us, the greatest demonstration of love there is. And if that doesn't prove that God is trustworthy, if that doesn't prove that God loves us beyond anything that we can fathom, then there's no more he can do. There's no more that he could do to prove that to us. And I'm sure that there's times when he's saying, come on, after all I've done, why don't you trust me? Why don't you just believe that I'll take care of you in this moment? But this is the struggle that the Israelites have. They encounter this new problem and ultimately at the heart of it all, I don't trust you, God. I'm going to blame Moses. We might even try to kill him. We're going to contend. We're going to complain. But really at the heart of it all, I pose this question because it reveals where I'm at. Are you even with me or not? I don't trust that you're going to take care of me. I don't trust that you're going to deal with this situation and help me get through this problem. But you know, God has done so many things that He wants them to remember. And I could get it. If it's the very first time they're encountering something, they don't know anything about God, He hasn't proven Himself to them, I would get I don't trust you. But man, God has already done so much. It's like, remember the plagues. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. Remember when you walked outside. Remember there was man. Remember the quail. Remember all that I've done. Trust me. It's the main lesson I want you to take from this chapter. There are two real different responses we should have to problems. Don't respond as the Israelites. When faced with a problem, don't complain. Don't blame others. 
Don't test God with this. Do you really love me? Are you here for me? None of that helps. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, in the the moment of that problem, what we want is help through it, or probably what we really want is it removed from our life. But, you know, if that doesn't happen, we still, Lord, I need help. I can't handle this. And the complaining and the, you know, blaming and all these other things, all that's going to do is add to the problem. It's not going to help you. Instead, we should trust God. Remember all the ways He has taken care of us in the past and the fact that He will continue to do so and bring our problems to Him in prayer. That's what God wants. I want you to look back at all the ways that I've been faithful, all the ways that I've helped, all the things that I've done, and now I want you just to bring this to me in prayer and trust me. I want you to just ask for my help. I'll give it. I want you to just come to me with this, trusting that I can get you through it, trusting that I can give you what you need. So this week, the Lord might lead you, as He did with the nation of Israel, to a problem. Because he's more concerned about your spiritual growth and your present comfort. And he might say, you know what? I want to teach you this week. I'm going to bring you into this situation and I want to encourage you put into practice what we've looked at tonight. Instead of complaining, instead of passing or, you know, blaming, hey, Lord, I'm going to bring it to you in prayer. I'm going to remember what you've done. I want to grow through this. Teach me. Or maybe you're just going to encounter a problem because life's hard and there's a lot of sinful people. It's not something necessarily God's brought you into, but now you're faced with it. You got bad coworkers, you got difficult family, you got hard neighbors, whatever it is. Once again, put this into practice. What's the difference? If you're prone to blame and complain, I can guarantee your problems are much worse than they need to be. If you would just come and trust and pray, it would make such a big difference in the way in which You can respond the way in which you can get through, the way in which that problem ultimately influences you and impacts your life. But also just look for ways that God wants to help you grow. I think that's the one area that we typically don't want to see. We don't really focus on, Lord, I'm in this. What do you want to teach me? What lessons do you want me to learn? How can I grow in the midst of this? Because your word tells us trials produce perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. I say I want to be a man of character, a woman of character. Well, help me. I'm in the trial. Help me grow. Help me learn. Help me become more like you. So Israel's encountered a lot. Doesn't seem like they've been learning a lot. Sometimes that's the way we are. But hopefully we can take the truth of this word and put it into practice and see God do a work in it. Any thoughts? Any thoughts?